Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week, I have Brianna Abrams here with me. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Good. I'm super excited to chat with you. Um, I have let my listeners know that we're kind of changing some things on the podcast to talk about things within the ecosystem, like marine ecosystems as a whole, and things that affect the Southern residents. And you're our first person to talk about some of these issues with. Um, But Brianna's a researcher at uh, the University of Washington. Can you give us um, an introduction of who you are, what you do, and how you came to develop your academic interests? Sure. Well, I first want to say thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be on the podcast. Um, Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. Yeah. Um, So I'm an assistant professor in the biology department and a center called the Center for Ecosystem Sentinels at the University of Washington. And the Center for Ecosystem Sentinels is all about understanding how animals in our environment can tell us about how our environment is changing. So if we study animals and animal populations and how they are changing over time or how their behaviors are changing, we can learn a lot about what is changing in their environment that's hard to measure in other ways. And that's especially true with species in the ocean where a lot of times it's easier to you know, count whales or count seals than it is to count the fish that they're eating or rely on. Um, So that's our focus. And um, how I came about this, actually, I uh, did my PhD on African large carnivore ecology. So totally, totally different. Um, But in that system, I was very interested in how Uh, those animals were responding to human activities and human-made changes in their landscape. And it's not too difficult of a transition to then start thinking about that in the ocean, um, especially because a lot of the species I study are 
large kind of charismatic megafauna that have a lot of the same um, kind of challenge, conservation challenges, whether they're on land or in the ocean. For sure. Um, how did you like initially develop these interests? Have you like always loved animals since you were a kid or you just like found like something that you were really interested in studying and came about it that way? Um, it's funny because this is very embarrassing, but I was, well, I was obsessed with animals when I was very little. Um, and I really, my only, um, exposure to what you could do in terms of studying them, um, was reading books like Dr. Doolittle, like that, that was just kind of my, um, image of like somebody who studies animals. I just didn't have, um, I didn't have a lot of exposure to that. And I remember my mom telling me I had this, when I was little, I had this fear of spiders. And I remember my mom telling me, well, if I wanted to, you know, study animals in nature, I'd have to get over my fear of spiders. Um, and I think that that actually put me off a little bit. And at the same time, I was very interested in astronomy and astrophysics. And I ended up pursuing a career, well, pursuing an um, undergraduate degree in physics. So that was my undergraduate major. And like I said, I really didn't realize that ecology or animal behavior was a potential career path um, until I just kind of on a whim took an ecology class in my senior year of undergrad and completely fell in love with it. It was kind of returning to my original roots of love of nature and love of animals. Um, I just didn't realize, I think my exposure to kind of biology was like microbiology and, you know, cellular biology and not realizing that you could actually make a career out of studying wildlife. Um, and so that really changed things. And so after college, I spent several years just trying to gain research experience um, in the ecology field, because previously I'd only had experience with physical, with physics and phys uh, physics research. So um, yeah, so I spent time doing that and then um, eventually kind of found a project that I was passionate about, which was studying this large carnivore population down in Botswana. Um, and that's what I ended up pursuing for my PhD. And then, um, and then kind of switched tacks to some degree when I did a postdoc after finishing my PhD. And that's when I started studying marine systems. That's awesome. Um, so I like went to your website, um, that's through the university of Washington and found like a bunch of your research papers. I see a lot of, do a lot of work with blue whales. Um, but I wanted to focus this episode on talking about the article that you have titled human wildlife conflict under climate change. Um, so can you give us a definition of what human wildlife conflict is? Sure. There's actually a number of different definitions in the literature, but I conceive of it quite broadly, which is essentially any direct non-extractive interaction between people and wildlife that lead to adverse outcomes for one or the other. So we're not talking about fishing or hunting. Those are kind of extractive activities. Um, and we're also not talking about um, humans developing cities and that having a negative, you know, a negative impact or, or land conversion and that having a negative impact on wildlife um, because those aren't necessarily direct interactions, mm -hmm. but things like um, whales getting accidentally caught in fishing gear um, or um, a, 
a large carnivore like a lion going and killing cows or sheep um, at a farm and then um, that would be considered a human wildlife conflict and and oftentimes what we see is retaliation in response to that so people will go poison you know poison large carnivores or shoot them um, that's also another form of large, of human wildlife conflict um, another example that we see um, increasingly in the Arctic for example is um, and actually in the American uh, West is bears foraging at campgrounds and on at at dump sites, um, you know, that that's not good for the bears and that can cause, um, you know, increased threatening interactions with people. So those are all examples of human wildlife conflict. Awesome. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I went to Tanzania in my undergrad and part of our like research project was looking at human wildlife conflict. And there was a lot of like lions eating cattle and mm-hmm. things like that. So you, this article focuses on how this dynamic kind of changes under climate change. So how has climate change impacted these interactions? Obviously there's a variety of examples, but just kind of generally, um, what have you seen? Well, it's really interesting just at, at a, at a very broad global scale, what we're seeing is that climate change is actually exacerbating these human wildlife conflicts in many different parts of the planet. So we're seeing increased conflicts as a result of long-term change. So an example of that would be as sea ice has declined in the Arctic, polar bears have to spend more time on land. They're not able to hunt for their normal prey like seals as well because they rely on sea ice to do that. And so they're also looking for alternative food sources and foraging more at dumps um, and coming into closer contact with people. And because of that, there's been a long-term rise in human conflicts with polar bears as a result of long-term climate change. But then all around the world, we're also seeing this increase increased frequency and severity of extreme climate events. So, you know, extreme droughts, extreme fires, um, hurricanes, uh, those kinds of things. Um, In the ocean, we have marine heat waves. That's something that we have been seeing a lot more off of the West Coast. And oftentimes when you have those extreme acute events that happen for relatively short periods of time, you often get a rise in Uh, human wildlife conflict incidences during those extreme events. Um, And so an example of that in the ocean is uh, the whale entanglements that we have had on the West Coast. So I don't know how familiar you are, but back in 2014 to 2016, we had a record marine heat wave um, that formed off of the U.S. West Coast. And during that time, there was an over 400% increase in the number of large whales becoming entangled in fishing gear. Um, and that was a direct result of that marine heat wave. Um, so so that, those are just two examples, polar bears and the, the whale entanglements. Um, but there are dozens of examples all around the world, um, both in marine and terrestrial systems. That's... That's crazy. A 400% increase. Wow. Um, was it all kinds of whales or was it like specific species of whales? It was mostly humpback whales, but what was really interesting about that, that event is that we also saw new species becoming entangled that never had been in the past or hadn't been, you know, on record for 
several decades. So blue whales, for example, were all of a sudden seen becoming entangled in fishing gear. And that hadn't happened um, in at least two decades. So we were also seeing more species becoming involved in that conflict beyond just increasing numbers uh, within a species. Absolutely. Um, so you talked about that a little bit in your paper. And then um, you also referred to this risk assessment and mitigation program that's happening in California. And since you know the Southern residents range all the way down to Big Sur, um, I was wondering if you could provide us with some more details on what that is about. Yeah, I think, so this is, um, it's called the California Risk Assessment Mitigation Program. So it's quite a mouthful, but it's, um, the acronym is RAMP. And it's specifically developed to help the state of California manage when to open and close the Dungeness crab fishery that it manages in order to reduce the risk of whale entanglements. So when that um, big marine heat wave occurred, the main fishery that was implicated in all of the whale entanglements was the Dungeness crab fishery, um, which is an incredibly lucrative fishery and very commercially and, um, and socially important fishery you know, on the West Coast. And so the, the ramp, um, I think, is very innovative. And it's one of the, the earliest, I would say, um, examples of really using a very proactive management strategy that updates its, its management of the fishery in, you know, in near real time based on, um, based on changing conditions uh, in order to try to estimate the likelihood of whale entanglement and then respond before that actually happens. So what it does is it takes into account multiple different data sources. Um, it takes into account what the ocean is doing and what the climate is doing. So, you know, a marine heat wave would be a big red flag, um, increase, you know, increased sea surface temperatures or, um, or reduction in certain what good whale habitat would be a big red flag that there might be increased whale entanglement risk. Um, it also takes into account what's happening in terms of the forage fish base. So what happened during the marine heat wave was there was a switch from a krill dominated regime to an anchovy dominated regime. Mm -hmm. And anchovy are concentrate, tend to concentrate closer to shore. Mm -hmm. And so humpback whales, they can prey switch. They can eat krill when krill are available and then they can switch to, to anchovy when anchovy are more available. And so when that, forage base regime changed during the heat wave and there became more anchovy available near shore, whales followed those fish closer to shore and closer to shore is where all the fishing gear was. And so that was one of the big contributors to why we saw an increase in whale entanglements. So now, you know, the state of California is monitoring what the, um, the forage fish base is and taking that into account in terms of its risk assessment. Um, it also takes into account, you know, actual whale distributions and whale concentrations. Um, so, you know, if we're starting to see changes in whale migration patterns, um, where we're seeing higher numbers of concentrations, for example, off of the West Coast, that could be an indicator of increased, um, increased whale entanglement risk. And so it takes into account 
And then it also takes into account where fishing activity is occurring. Um, so it takes into account all of those different things and kind of puts it together to estimate what the total risk of whale entanglements is. And if there's high risk, then it may delay the opening of the fishery or it may close it early. Um, and so since that, um, since it's been implemented, um, it, it has done so. So for example, in 2019, it ended up closing the fishery early because there was really elevated risk of whale entanglement. And because of that, it actually was able to, well, we, we can't ever truly know, you know, how many whales were saved from that, but um, they, they did estimate that there was a high risk of whale entanglement. And um, because of that, shut down the fishery early. For sure. I'm sure that that's like a difficult balance with, you know, the economic, social and environmental aspects that go into that. Um, did you find or, or I don't know how closely you worked with like the fishermen or the policymakers, but was this like a pretty cooperative endeavor or was there a lot of pushback from fishing communities? It's definitely been contentious. Um, so there there are certainly fishermen. There, there's um, the California I think it's called the California Dungeness Crab or, or West Coast Whale Entanglement Working Group. There's, I forget the exact name because it's, it's many words long, but there's a working group that, that has helped develop these policies. And on that working group are representatives from the fishing industry. But it's, it's certainly, certainly not easy. There's, there's very, very clear trade-offs between when you have the fishery um, open and close and how much you know, whale entanglement risk is mitigated versus how much revenue may be lost. Um, some collaborators and I have done a study that looked at if we, you know, do various different openings and closures of the fishery um, and have different kind of rules for how to respond to increased whale entanglement, what, what's kind of the best win-win situation. Um, and generally speaking, we found that um, rules that were a little bit more flexible spatially. So rather than having a, a single rule cover all, you know, cover all of the state of California. So let's, instead of closing the fishery for the entire state, closing the fishery just in certain areas can be um, more of a win-win. Mm -hmm. So you can still kind of prevent whale, whale entanglements while also not totally cutting off, you know, fishing activity, um, and also making it a little bit fle more flexible in terms of time. So, um, you know, having, having some flexibility in terms of, um, when, when the fishery is opened and closed and not having like set rules about that, um, can also help kind of balance those trade-offs. Um, sure. but it, yeah, it's definitely, definitely difficult. Absolutely. Um, are there any sort of like financial incentives that might offset any revenue loss for the fishermen? Do you know? I, I really don't know. I think, um, I think that I would, yeah, suggest maybe speaking to somebody on the, on the working group. Sure. Um, but yeah. yeah, but I do know that there's, you know, concurrently with that, um, ramp policy, there's also a lot of development to develop like ropeless fishing gear or ropes that, um, that will break much more easily. If a whale gets entangled, they'll be able to kind of, um, wriggle their way out of it more easily. And so, um, so they're definitely, you know, attacking this problem from multiple different angles, not just policy, but also yes. technologically as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, 
work on a dock. And so I, you know, I hear fishermen and I, you know, meet um, different people and I've heard them talking about those, um, like the crab traps that will like release um, like the rope. And right. So um, I had a captain who had an interesting theory. He said that um, he had noticed that there was like a specific type of rope that the humpbacks would get entangled in. And he thought it had something to do with the color of it because like they were like a green or a blue color and he thought maybe it blended in. Do you know if anybody's looked into that? I know these are like questions you may not have the answers to, but just figured I would ask. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't, I haven't heard of anyone looking into that, but I also don't know that that means that there isn't anyone looking into that. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, this is the climate change and human wildlife conflict is something that occurs, it sounds like all over the world in in all different ecosystems. Why is it important for us to understand these impacts? Well, it's, first of all, it's, you know, there's a lot of work, as we all know, being done that looks at how climate change is impacting human populations, for example, like sea level rise, and also how climate change is impacting animal populations, like driving population declines. Um, But there hasn't been a lot of work that has looked at how climate change impacts the interactions between people and wildlife. And that is super important because it's completely changing how we interact, how animals interact with us and how we are interacting with animals and the likelihood of contact between them. Um, And so it can help us understand why we're seeing the changes that we're seeing. So for example, the fact that we're seeing this long-term increase in polar bear, um, polar bear conflicts, despite the fact that there hasn't been a long-term increase in polar bear populations. Actually, in many cases, there's been a decline in polar bear com- um, populations, but still a rise in, in, in conflicts. And so it can help us understand why that's happening. It can help us predict where and when conflicts are more likely to occur. So for example, now we know marine heat waves are can be a really detrimental um, event in terms of human wildlife conflicts with the whale entanglements. We've also seen um, shark shark bite incidences increase in certain parts of the world when there have been marine heat waves or strong El Ninos. Um, So that can give us clues into, okay, we're coming into another marine heat wave or we're coming into another strong El Nino event. Um, What can we do to prepare for this? How can we educate people that increased conflict may occur? And so by doing, by understanding what the drivers of those conflicts are, we're better able to prepare for it and to predict their occurrence. Um, and, and also it can help us understand what, what needs to essentially be mitigated. So like what we can actually do about it. So, you know, um, uh, you know, with the, with the California risk assessment mitigation program, you know, recognition that ocean conditions and climate conditions are important factors in the likelihood of whale entanglements helps develop this really neat and proactive policy that now takes into account what the climate and the ocean are doing and updating management measures, um, you know, in response to, to try to be more proactive. And so that information can be really valuable for, um, yeah, for, for, for developing actual policies. Um, one other example, just like a very kind of simple example is that 
um, this is a terrestrial example, but in Mexico, um, some research found, researchers found a, a really strong correlation between droughts and tapirs, you know, those um, yeah. small, small kind of ungulate type animals. Um, they would, uh, during droughts, tapirs are really water dependent. And so they would go searching in villages for water to drink. Um, and when they came into villages, they would also, you know, trample crops and raid, raid farmlands and things like that. And in response, people in those villages would, would kill them. And so that's, you know, that's a livelihoods issue for people. And that's a um, conservation issue for tapirs. And so these researchers, said, hey, why don't we just put out water troughs in tapir habitat um, during droughts? And that way they have the access to water that they need. Um, and that's just like one really simple um, example of how like understanding what the underlying driver of the conflict is can help develop, you know, proactive on the ground mitigation measures to reduce that conflict. Absolutely. Um... Yeah. So my next question was going to be like, how do we mitigate these issues? And it sounds like, first of all, a basic understanding is the first place to start. I'm curious too. I know we have like a little bit of a limited time here, um, but I know you do a lot of work with blue whales and I feel like blue whales, we don't know as much about like compared to say like humpbacks and orcas. What can you tell us about blue whales? Yeah. I mean, do you mean just like general biology or do you mean conservation threats? Um, if we could do like a little bit of general biology, just to like, kind of get a foundation sure. and then tell us like what we could do to help blue whales. Yes. Um, blue whales are an incredible animal. Um, so if folks don't know, blue whales are the largest animal to ever exist on earth. So they're larger than any dinosaur that ever lived. Um, so we currently have on our planet right now, the largest animal to ever exist in the history of the earth, which I think is really cool. Um, so some fun facts about them is that they can grow to be around a hundred feet long. So that's the, that's the, can be the length of three buses, you know, put back to back. Um, their tongues can weigh as much as an elephant. And their hearts can actually be as large as a VW bug. So, so actually, um, there was one study that that basically said, you know, like a five-year-old child could fit through the aorta of a blue whale. Yeah. <laughs> Just crazy, crazy facts. Um, but what's really interesting about them is that despite being the largest animal to ever exist, they also eat some of the very smallest animals in the ocean, which are krill. So blue whales are very specialist feeders on krill um, and krill are tiny little crustaceans, pink crustaceans, um, and blue whales are very dependent on dense aggregations of krill. And so they can eat up to 9,000 pounds of krill a day, um, according to one estimate. So they're very dependent on these very dense aggregations. Um, and there are populations of blue whales all around the planet. Um, we have a population here on the West Coast and they breed down um, in the Costa Rica dome. So down in the tropics and then in the spring and summertime they migrate up to the uh, US West Coast um, because in the spring and summertime we get really, really productive waters that produce really high and dense aggregations of krill that blue whales like to feed on and then they pack on weight and then they migrate back down south um, in the fall and the winter to breed. So that's awesome. 
Yeah, I was going to ask if they had different populations of blue whales, because um, I remember reading a study that they had like tagged blue whales that they thought were going one direction, they end up going the opposite direction. Um, and we don't see them very much here, so we don't talk about them a lot. Um, so what is currently threatening them? I know that they were like nearly extinct at one point, right? Yeah, so, so yes, so blue whales are considered, according to the IUCN, at a global scale, the best estimates give a range of between three and 11% of the three, between three and 11% of their pre-industrial um, populations now exist. So, so basically their populations at a global scale are very depleted. Some populations have um, recovered much better than others. And actually the West Coast blue whale population that we have here is, is actually doing very well. Um, so it's, it's, it's getting close to what scientists estimate where their pre-industrial um, pop population levels. Their population decline was mainly driven by um, hunting, but, but um, now the main source of mortality to blue whales, um, at least on the West Coast here is ship strikes. So not very many things kill blue whales, but huge ships are a big source of um, what kills blue whales now. Absolutely. Um, so are there any, like, what can we do to prevent that? Are there like, you know, do we need to write politicians or is it that like cargo ships need to be like more educated on the blue whales? Like what, what can we do to help them? Yeah, so I, I'm very, very grateful to be part of this really exciting project called Whale Safe on the West Coast. Um, so for anyone who's interested, go to www.whalesafe.com, all one word. Um, and that is a project that um, is a, a huge collaboration between the Benioff Ocean Initiative, the University of Washington, um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, and several other universities, University of Santa, UC Santa Cruz, um, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and Texas A&M. So lots and lots of different people. Um, and that, that whole effort is basically to try to better pinpoint when blue whales are in areas of high risk of ship strike on the West Coast, um, and then to communicate that information to transiting ships um, and to you know, NOAA policymakers um, so that they can make better decisions to try to reduce the likelihood of ship strike. Um, so you know, one thing that, uh, that WhaleSafe is working on now is trying to develop relationships with large um, consumer, consumer organizations um, and suppliers that will work with shipping companies that um, that comply with the with the recommendations for when to slow down to reduce ship strikes, mm -hmm. because there's been a number of studies that have shown that one of the best ways of preventing whale deaths is to slow down when in high risk areas for ships to slow down. And so, what another component that Whale Safe does besides tracking whale presence is also tracking what ships are doing. So we look at how um, how likely ships are to at complying, how good ships are at complying with slowdown recommendations and giving them letter grades and communicating that. Um, and uh, hopefully in the future, we'll be developing some kind of um, like whale safe um, 
like certification for, for shipping companies that can, you know, can call themselves whale safe because they slow down. Um, and then working with um, consumer organizations that will preferentially work with those shipping companies that, that are, you know, get good grades in terms of how whale safe they are. That's awesome. That's a really cool initiative. I love to hear about that. I will be sure to put the website in the link description here. Um, and then I have one final question for you. I ask everybody on the podcast what we can learn from the Southern residents, but I want to know what we could learn from the blue whales. Oh, wow. Um, I think one thing, I mean, this is similar to Southern residents as well, but blue whales are migrant, many blue whales, many blue whale populations are migratory. So they cross huge, huge distances. And I think what we can learn from that is that the conservation of these migratory species often does not follow, you know, country boundaries or um, political boundaries. And we need to be thinking a lot more about how to have, you know, more global initiatives that are working together across really large geographic extents to protect whales. Because, you know, we can do everything we can to reduce ship strikes to whales here on the West Coast, but then if they are getting hammered in another part of their range um, from some other threat, then it's still maybe a net negative. So, you know, obviously we all need to do what we can in the places that we live. But I think that just thinking about how many, you know, thousands of miles these animals are crossing every single year can really help us frame, um, you know, these conservation problems as really being being global problems and hopefully developing more international partnerships around that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that is um, definitely a good point to bring up uh, just because it's, you know, these animals, you're right, they don't know these boundaries and we made them up. And so we definitely have to work together. Awesome. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time today to be on the podcast. Um, and I will also put the website for where we can find all your research too, because there's a lot of other interesting projects that we did not talk about today that I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in um, learning more about. So head to the link in uh, this episode description for those of you guys that want to check it out. And thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Erica. It's great speaking with you. Thank you everybody for joining us. We are excited for our new episodes, diving into other topics. Tune in next week. We are going to learn about sea stars. If you guys have any questions about sea stars that you'd like to have answered, send them to us over the weekend, either via email or over Instagram or something. We'd love to get those answered for you guys. If there are any topics that you guys are interested in learning about too, definitely message us. I'm very excited about what we've got in store over the next coming months. So just stay tuned for that. And I hope you guys all have a great week. Be sure to check out all the links down below um, and definitely go check out more of Brianna's papers because she's got a lot of super interesting research. So definitely go look at that. Okay, bye.